Hey guys, and welcome to the Abundance Alchemist podcast. I'm Caitlin Dorsey, an Abundance Alchemist, animal lover, trauma survivor to thriver, mindset expert, self-love junkie, and author. This is the place to be to grab those powerful tools, ideas, and inspiration to make lasting changes in yourself and your life. No more waiting, my friends, because it's time to show up unapologetically, radiate that confidence, and create a life you absolutely love. Time to buckle up and dive on in. Hello, my high-vibing friends. I'm so excited that you're here with me on the Abundance Alchemist podcast today. I'm beyond excited to introduce you guys to our amazing guest today. Um, His name is David. So David Richards is an international best-selling author, a life strategist, and yoga instructor. He spent his early childhood living in various parts of the United States and three years living on the island of Okinawa, Japan. After graduating with a bachelor's degree in English, he was commissioned as an officer in the Marines. He earned two master's degrees while in active duty and was was um, part of the initial landing force in Somalia in support of Operation Restore Hope. So welcome, David. Caitlin, thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm beyond excited. Um, first of all, I have to say two master's degrees while you were um, in active duty just like blows my mind. <laughs> well, thank you. But it's it was all military related. So it's all like okay. learning more about the art of war. So it was uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. What are the um, specific masters that you have, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so the first one, so there's, even in the military, you're, you're sort of always, you're training out in the field and you're doing things or you're in actual operations. Mm-hmm. But then there are times when you rotate and do other assignments, like train recruits or recruit people. And there's also opportunities to go to school. And so as you advance through your career, there's something called Command and Staff College, which kind of teaches you to be a on a staff of a general officer, like on a, on a big staff planning campaigns like Iraq or Fallujah, things like that. Um, and so you have the opportunity to earn a master. So I earned it. And for that, it was military studies. And so okay. it was really understanding kind of the history of warfare, the military, how it shapes economics, how it shapes politics and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote on the post, this was during um, Iraq, like 2003, 2004. Mm-hmm. So this, my thesis was about post-war occupation of Germany and how we almost really got that wrong. And then we figured out how to get it right in contrast to what we were seeing in Iraq at the time, which is the full-blown insurgency that took off because people in the defense department thought they knew better than history. So, mm-hmm. um, so the second one was really cool because it was uh, operational studies, but they I think like we had 300 people apply to it. They only took 24 people and you work full time with two PhDs. We had Supreme court justices come down. We've spent three weeks in Italy studying battlefields, like being on the physical ground where battlefields took place. We did the same thing in Vietnam, which again, to go back to you know what I said before we started recording, just my father's experience in Vietnam and then going to that place where he was. Mm-hmm. Um, but you come out of that and you have this incredible command of how you understand how, why people make the decisions they make. Mm-hmm. And cause that's the whole purpose of the school is you can go now on a general staff and help them plan for success, which is victory, you know, how, whatever that's defined at, but really super cool. So that was uh, operational studies. And my thesis was on a, a weapon that was being developed that could fire a million rounds a minute. Whoa. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> Yeah, I think now they just call it a laser, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Wow, that's impressive. So I like that you have, you know, this deep background in kind of the structures behind, um, you know, in the military and in the Marines. And I and I think that's um, like I shared with you before we started recording of something that I found really interesting because I think that 
you know, military is really kind of its own world. Um, And like what we do not as like civilians understand. And so it's such kind of a foreign concept to, you know, my background in mental health and then kind of like bringing this spiritual aspect. And when I saw that you went from being in the Marines to being a yoga instructor, I was like, whoa, that's quite a shift. Uh, I mean, that's a huge shift. So I would love to hear a little bit about like your story and how that even transpired. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's all, and it's, it's all connected, which is the crazy part. And that's been something that I've come to appreciate as I'm working on my latest book, but you know, I grew up in the military and you're right. It's, and most people, when you think the military, they think of either the people they see or the people overseas, Mm -hmm. but you don't think of those people doing the same thing as you do having dinner, playing in like the same box in the backyard, like Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. And you have lives. Mm -hmm. The difference is, when you live on a military base, it's, it is its own universe because it's got its own police. It's got its own fire. Everybody's in the military. So the neighborhood's pretty safe. Mm-hmm. And it's like, people don't lock their doors. Like it's, it's that kind of, it's like, and that's what I think is such a huge difference is it, like, I grew up in the seventies and eighties mm-hmm. and I can remember living at Camp Lejeune, the Marine Corps base here in North Carolina for high school and sometimes it just felt like it was the fifties because like <laughs> nobody was really stressed. And like, I know part of it's the relief of like, you have to kind of step back and appreciate we just finished Vietnam. We had lost mm-hmm. and people were living with that. But at the same time, there was relief that at least everybody's home, mm-hmm. like at least everybody's home. And that's like a beautiful thing. And what you realize is when you're not in the military, that reality is so far away from you. Mm. It, even as a veteran, I know that I don't have the same experiences or thoughts that friends of mine who are still on active duty do about what they do in the military. So, so, so growing up in the military, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's just cool because like you appreciate that everybody's kind of got the same experience. Like all their parents have the same And so you create friends and things, but then what happens is you move Mm -hmm. and all that just stops. And this is like seventies. You're not texting anybody. You're not FaceTiming. We're never going to see each other again. Our friendship's over Bye. And as a kid, that for me was super hard to deal with because Mm -hmm. I love my friends. Like I just, I love that. And then to have that uprooted and be like, Oh, and so first it's this pain and then it starts to turn to anger and resentment as you become a teenager, because I'm like, it's my dad's fault. Like he's the one like, and I remember when we lived in Japan, you know, I was 10 years old and it was so amazing. This is 1979. And obviously I don't know how big the United States was at the time, mm-hmm. but I can say comfortably that maybe half a fraction of a percent of the population had the experience of living overseas this kind of way back then. Yeah. And to be exposed to that culture, and to breathe it and to see it and to live it for three years, especially at a developmental age, moving into teenage years mm-hmm. was incredible. I had the best time. Like it was in some ways it was like an antidote for like having too much to watch on TV because we had one television channel that was American. And then there were two that I think were Japanese. And it's like, so we would go over there, watch cartoons, even though we couldn't understand what they were saying in the cartoons, but the cartoons were so cool. <laughs> um, 
And so just this beautiful, you know, friendship bonded with this you know, guy. We both like comic books. We both like to draw. We both played soccer. It was like the melding of a friendship that if you lived in small town USA or someplace you didn't move was going to be your friendship for life. Like you guys are going to like, like blossom together, figure out like college, do this whole thing. And, and I saw that, like when I got out of the military, I was like, Oh, that's what that looks like when, when people are able to do that, but we weren't able to do that because, you know, I'm 13, he's 12. We go to North Carolina, he goes to Virginia. And so now like I have this teenage and you come back to the U S no one's had that experience. No, no one has ex- been exposed to the culture of someplace as beautiful as Japan. And you're kind of a nerd. And so, like, I was like, the best way I can describe it, Caitlin, is if you've ever seen the movie Pretty in Pink, mm. I was ducky. And the reality was, like, the movie came out in high school. So you want to talk about a meta moment. So, like, <laughs> all my friends went to go see it. And they're like, David, you're ducky. And I'm like, I know. And I don't want to be ducky. <laughs> like, it's oh. And so, but it was also, so I had the anger, but then I also had, like, I loved writing. I loved creativity. Mm-hmm. And that was like what really flourished in Japan because you got the, the influence of how they drew and how they put toys together, all this stuff. So the resentment, like it was kind of this war. And I realized that my romantic idea of love kind of like Ducky was not going to prevail in high school in the mid eighties in small town military base USA. Um, and so, like, I, I was kind of resigned to my fate. I got to college, and I realized, okay, that didn't work, so I'm going to blend in. I'm going to drink a lot, be stupid, be obnoxious. Um, and part of it was because I had abandoned the idea of writing. Like, I loved writing. I got some recognition in high school. But I had abandoned that because I didn't have confidence in myself because, I, like, I, I don't know. Again, small town USA, how am I ever going to be the next Stephen King? That was my kind of idol. Like, I want to be Stephen King or I want to just write superhero you know, comic books. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also knew, like, okay, I had to pay for college. That was a wake-up call. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me do the easy route. I'll, go the, I'll join the military. So, so I joined the Marines. And at first, I loved it because I was doing Marine stuff. Like, I, I mean, even before you go to someplace like Somalia, you do incredible amounts of training. Mm-hmm. And it's so like, especially you're 23 years old, you've been like your experience is college life and what came before. Mm-hmm. And now you're like dropping out of helicopters in the middle of the night. You're doing boat raids on the coast of San Diego to practice. I was in artillery. So you're blowing stuff up all the time. It was amazing. And then to top it off, you go in someplace in like Somalia and you want your first people ashore. You're like, the military is, um, this is the best thing ever. Like, and I remember like talking to someone like, I mean, Christmas, we spent Christmas day in Somalia. Like I made a Christmas tree out of um, cardboard boxes and stuff and, mm. and put the food that we eat under it for the Marines. So when they woke up, they had to they could choose their food. So, so it becomes, that's super cool. And then you get away from that and you get back from Somalia and someone else gets to be the, cool person who's on TV and doing those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And your unit is like cleaning up the barracks. So you're doing like mundane tasks because you have no money now to do stuff. Mm -hmm. And so reality, it's like, Oh, this is the military too. Like, it's not just the glamor stuff or like putting your life on the line. It's 
sweeping and wiping windows and all this other stuff. And so I kind of saw like, okay, let me do what other people do. And so got married and okay, that's, that's good. And, um, and then you move again. And so it's like, well, by now you're used to it and I'm getting paid to do it. So it's not that bad, mm-hmm. but divorce happened. Um, kind of again, further anger and not like, I can't really place it. And then I finally get to a point where like, why am I after 15 years, I was like, why am I doing the thing that I hate, hated growing up? And I'm not like, I'm now doing it for a living. And I'd had some surgery. I had a benign tumor removed from my neck. And I was just like, you know what? I'm not, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I don't care about, I don't care about retirement. I like, I've been doing this my entire life. Mm-hmm. I'm terrified of what's on the other side of being in the military because that's all I've known, but I'm, I'm willing to do it now at 36 or whatever I was at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I got out in August of 2006. Um, I came to my parents here in North Carolina because that was kind of going to be my rally point. So I figured out what I was doing for work and I was going to live in Virginia beach for a year for the company I was working for. But um, I read a sports illustrator article about football players using yoga to strengthen the midsections. Hmm. And again, day two out of the military. So like football players, manly, testosterone. If they're doing yoga, I can do yoga. That's cool. Mm -hmm. I went to my first class, uh, gentle yoga class. Cool. But I'm like, I'm not not feeling, I don't know what this is. Like maybe it'll help me working out because I lift a lot of weights. Two days later, a different class, different style instructor, drenched in sweat. And I was just like, what is this? Like, what is this? And then after just a few days of, or a few classes, I realized because of the military, I got like five email a day. I mean, it wasn't because I was doing other stuff. And in corporate America, I was getting like 50 email an hour. Mm-hmm. And I would leave work and my mind would just be this noise of traffic, of reminders and to-dos and all this stuff. And I found when I got to yoga and I got on the mat, my mind got quiet. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait a minute. Whoa. Like what? I want more of that. Mm-hmm. And so I became an instructor after a year, um, just fell in love with it, but also kind of kept my distance because of my upbringing, like the Hindu, yeah. you can't, you can't really distinguish yoga from Hinduism. You can't separate them completely. Right. And, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's also like, okay, that's new to me because mm-hmm. I grew up with a very different story and mindset about how all that happened. Um, but you slowly start to realize that there's commonality between the stories, mm-hmm. even in the farthest reaches, but it's like, okay. And it just opens you up. And then, you know, I, I progressed begrudgingly, I think, through becoming a veteran in civilian world. I don't really consider myself a civilian, mm-hmm. but, um, but I remember like, Caitlin, I feel like every day for the, probably the first five or six years, I was comparing what happened in my day to what I knew in the military. Like it was yeah. just, I had to like, I, cause I, that was my, that was my only frame of reference. And I didn't realize it at the time we lived, we lived off base, which is maybe at some point we're talking about, we lived off base for four years years when i was in kindergarten through third grade third grade and again vietnam war 70s didn't take into consideration that people might like like who my dad was Mm -hmm. um 
And so like we had an incident where someone burned a cross in our yard, like we came back from vacation and it was, yeah, it was like super, super intense, but um, yeah. So you, you, like uh, for me, it was, it was a pathway really yoga became then a pathway for, okay, how am I going to blend in? How am I going to really sort of immerse myself in what it means to not be in the military? Yeah. And, um, and slowly kind of drop my guard which I'd built up for decades. And, you know, I had three attempts to write a book. I wanted to write again, a horror story because Stephen King mm-hmm. uh, wrote a hundred pages each time and then story petered out. And then I like, I really started to get cathartic in the late, like 2016, the late, the late um, 2016, because I had started seeing that I had patterns in my life that stemmed from always moving Mm-hmm. And I can begin to see now how those were impacting my life. And I didn't want that impact anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing the work and that led to my first book, Whiskey and Yoga, about finding your purpose in life, which you know for me was a revelation after reading Think and Grow Rich, like the first two chapters. And I was yep. like, Napoleon Hill, okay, got it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's, that's uh, I know that was long-winded, but that's, uh, that's kind of where I am. I love that. No, I appreciate you sharing all that. I think... Um... There's so many incredible things, and and I want to touch on a couple of them. Sure. Um, the first one, I love that your journey to yoga was so unique because I think that you said something of like I started yoga to to figure out how to fit in, and I yeah. think that you know that's so different than why most people do it. It's because like you know the woo woo or like the yoga piece and meditation, like it's all kind of like out out there to people, and I think. Yeah seeing that it's a, you actually use it as a way to fit in. It really shows a distinction of like, when I said like being in the military, I mean, you're obviously the expert and not me here, but like is a different world. You learn how to think differently. You learn how to operate differently. So when you said like, I'm comparing everything to the military, because that's all I had to go on from your background. I mean, like we can't even relate on that sense, you know, like people, if you don't have that, like, I think it's so interesting to look at the fact that like in our brains, we, we very much think, I guess this is a better way to look at it, um, that the rational piece of us and the emotional piece of us can operate separately. And that's not the case, right? The, right. the rational, I mean, every rational decision that we make is based on the emotion that we've attached to a previous experience. Yep. And so you saying like, I only had the military to reference on, like you grew up in a completely different not only like setting with having military parents, but also like mind frame of this and then coming into being on the mat and yoga is the only time that you didn't have these thoughts racing is, is really powerful just to show like that. That was a way that you were able to almost connect with this idea that sometimes people take for granted of, of just being able to just be. It's, it's so true, Caitlin. And I remember like the first, like, because I, I mean, when you get into yoga and for me, I think the safety net was, it was in a gym. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't going to be like in a studio where they're burning incense and candles and Ganesh is hanging out or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It was just gym yoga, grab a mat, do it. And then you can go lift weights. And that was kind of my philosophy, but it was also like, Oh my gosh, like there's really something there. And so then as I became an instructor, like you start to get into the yoga community and then mm-hmm you see people who are super into like, they like, they've just found it. That's their thing. And they dress differently. They talk differently, but also like the energy is so different. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I remember talking to these people and I know like they had to be looking at me the same way I was looking at them. I'm like, you are a foreigner to me. Like you, yeah. you're talking like, and it's not, if there, if there were hippies, if like I was born in 69, but I'm assuming if like to really understand hippies, it's kind of yoga people, but with like more properly, neatly dressed clothes. Like that's the only <laughs> difference. But like so many of my friends were like, yeah, man, that's so beautiful. Like, I love it, dude. And you're doing mm-hmm. great. And, and you realize like, oh, that's so cool. And it's not weird because you're a man saying that stuff to me. And it kind of gets you turned in a different direction. And then when you start to go in that direction, you're like, well, okay, what, wait, what a minute. I can, there's a purpose to my life. Wait, mm-hmm. wait, wait. Cause that like, that has like purpose means someone like, I mean, that's, that's, but there's background to that. Like there's something to that. And then you start to get into that. And I like in 2017 was such a pivotal year for me. I went to two Tony Robbins events mm. and I mean, I walked on fire and I like I shared stuff with people that I never thought I would share. Cause I had never thought about some of the things that were holding me back that I'd held on to, or these patterns that I had mm-hmm. disrupted to program something more healthy and positive. Um, so yeah, it's been, I mean, it's, and, and, and I think to that, so you, you hear someone like Tony Robbins, who's accomplished what he's accomplished and talk about the universe or talk about God and you're okay. This guy's really successful. He loves spending hours and hours with people telling you what has got him to where he is and how you can get there too. And like, he's pleading with you and almost, and he's talking about like the higher power. Mm-hmm. and like that okay like okay I'm, I'm gonna listen to that and yeah so it's um it's just i'm i'm so grateful i, I remember being on the other side of kind of this mountain of looking up at publishing a book or or figuring out what my platform is going to be and doing all this stuff mm-hmm. and it felt so far away it was so far away and then like during the pandemic became just really cathartic and that, that that's like I'm, I'm so excited for what's next so yeah, absolutely. And I think you you touched on a piece that, that always hits me is like, you know, I definitely resonate with the idea of, um, you know, having a higher power in the universe and um, yep. whatever you look at that as. Um, and there's so many different names for it. But, you know, being having my background in mental health, there is a ton of research that shows that when people do have a higher power of some sort, that their actual lifespan is increased and it blows me away of just like this fact. And, and the other pieces, like you're saying, like Tony Robbins is talking about this. Gabrielle Bernstein is like these people that have created these amazing, just like legacies and what they have done and created and put out in the world. They're to have this idea of like a higher power and, and to be giving so much to that it's just amazing. It's, it's an interesting concept. And I think with the, you know, the idea of purpose um, that you mentioned, you said that, that word a couple of times. And I think this yep. is a piece I want to touch on too. Um, I know you have a book that I believe is about purpose and it's called whiskey and yoga. Correct. Yes. And it says that they have something have more in common than you think. And I want to know the answer to this. <laughs> yes. Well, and that's, so I got, I got a t-shirt for Christmas in December, 2016. That was whiskey and yoga. And okay. I like, I like whiskey. I'm a yoga instructor. So it was perfect. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I read Napoleon Hill in January of 17. And like I said, I got past the first two chapters and I was like, 
oh my gosh, I got it. I'm gonna, it's like my purpose in life. Ooh. And so uh, I wrote Whiskey and Yoga and I knew immediately that's what it was going to be called. And then I think after a couple of days or something, I'm like, all right, well, what's the connection? Like, what is the connection between these two things? Because I can't, there has to be one. Otherwise I really can't use the title. It can't just be about irony. Right. And, um, and so I thought about it. I'm like, you know, I had, I had bought a 42 year old bottle of scotch. And my thought was if whiskey and yoga goes to number one on Amazon, when it launches, I'm going to have some of the scotch. And then like, and I said that, like when I started writing and then as I got closer to launch, I'm like, I really hope it's number one. Cause I'm not sure that I can stop myself from drinking the scotch. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> But I thought about it and I said, you know, whiskey is really this journey that the spirit takes mm. in a cask and that you age it and that's what gives it its distinct flavor. And then you can finish it in like sherry or, you know, whatever. Well, yoga is the journey of a spirit too. It's just, it's in this thing we call human body or human being or whatever in the flesh, but that tells the journey too. And that's what enlightenment is the path of the Buddha and you know, whatever. And so I'm like, they both tell the journey of the spirit. And that was the connection between the two. I love that. I think that's so interesting. Cause um, the other piece of my background is addiction. So I always okay. kind of have this negative idea and I'm not personally in recovery myself. And so just like this kind of like internal battle between like drinking and mental health and like all these different things. But when I saw that the title was whiskey and yoga and it was about purpose and you were like, they have more in common than you think. I was like, kind of got my wheels turning. I'm like, all right, what do these two have in common? Um, And it was that idea of like, you know, very similar in that sense of um, that we, we, as we age, like we, accumulate so much of this beautiful journey and we step into like almost like this richer kind of like taste, like the idea of whiskey. And and I thought it was really interesting. And, and I started thinking, you know, about, you know, coming on this podcast with you and talking about kind of your background in, in Marines. And I said, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, his purpose for the Marines is pretty cut and dry right? Like it's protection. It's, you know, you have what you do and there's, it's, there's not a whole lot of budge room there. And then you shift into this piece of where you said, like you leave the Marines and now there's kind of this place of what the heck is this new identity that I'm stepping into? Oh yeah. And identity is such a, is such a crazy piece. I mean, um, talking about just like crisis or, you know, like the midlife crisis, that's always one that comes up for people. And it's like this piece of like, I don't know what my identity is. And this is really where people struggle. Cause it's not like, you know, people think like, Oh, unemployment makes me unhappy or, um, you know, something else. Like there's these different life triggers that make us unhappy, but the yep. bottom point of it is a lack of identity. And so how did you shift into this idea of like, this was my purpose for so much of my life and I knew nothing different to, okay, now I'm becoming a yoga instructor and I'm learning to live in the present moment. And like, there's such difference between purpose and I think the present moment. I think there's such a difference in, in being and purpose. I'm curious, like what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, no, it's, it's, I love it because, and it's funny because my, I was going to call my third book being because mm-hmm. I thought it was just so catchy. And then I was going to subtitle how to win to the, how to win the game of your life. Mm-hmm. And then I started writing it and it went a completely different direction. But um, <laughs> I think, so when I look back at 
like the, the military does provide you that structure. Mm-hmm. And I think I had this idea of what my life is going to be. I had this idea yeah. that marriage and like, especially the military, because you want someone back home who's there for you when you are 3000 miles away or 6,000 miles away. And again, this is before the internet really got caught, you know, caught on and was a thing. And so all you have is you know letters. Like imagine like you don't get mail for three weeks and the only reality, you know, is the reality around you. Mogadishu, Somalia. Like that is it. That is your world. There is like all you, there's that. And then there's Navy ships that are like, half a mile or a mile offshore. Mm-hmm. And even sometimes they go and you're like, Oh, this is just us now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but at the same time, as much as I enjoyed the military part of what I did, the personal side was just this tragedy. Like it was mm-hmm. just like, and, and I think for me, it, it just came down to love. It was like, I like, and love of myself, like, why are you, why, like, because in some ways you don't realize it, but when, when people say the military toughens you up, it does because it's like, you do stuff that you don't think you can do and you find a way to do it anyway. And, and then you just kind of repeat that cycle again and again, and the tasks get bigger, the challenges get bigger or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of this like, weight that you start to carry at least for me it was like and it's certainly because i i started doing that when i was five or six years old because of the moving mm-hmm. and i just got to a place where i'm like you know what i like i love i love being a marine but i don't want to be one anymore like i just i i don't i want to be something else i want to be because that's the only thing like i i haven't had a successful relationship yet the only thing i haven't tried changing is who I am by what I do. Mm-hmm. And so let me get out. And, and I think that's why, yeah, yoga is yoga is swan diving off a cliff and like diving into water that you've never done before. But I'm like, why not? But I think it, it gave me footing. It gave me strength to, okay, let me like, let me get some momentum. And even though it didn't feel like it at the time, because I was still, ridding myself of patterns, unhealthy and destructive patterns. Um, it was just like, I, 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 I could feel progress. It didn't feel like it, but like you realize kind of when you've dug yourself in a hole, you don't automatically get out. Like you gotta, it takes time. Mm-hmm. And then when you realize that there is momentum and there is purpose and you start to believe in yourself and believe in this identity. Yes, yes there is a higher power and I have a relationship with it then you start to build the momentum. And that's what, I mean, that's kind of abundance. I think to me is like, it's not necessarily about what you've acquired. It's about who you've become because that's going to change your life. Because now if you go back to Tesla and frequency, you know, energy is all just vibrating a certain frequency mm-hmm. or matter rather um, then you realize I'm putting out a different frequency now because I am, I've processed this stuff. I've had my catharsis and I've come out of it stronger. I've come out of it with an identity that I love mm-hmm. instead of one that I hated and yet still kept building on. And that has been so liberating because like, I'm just, I know I'm a better person. Like, I just know I'm a better person. Mm-hmm. And, but the reality is it doesn't matter what you've gone through. Like if you just, if you are willing to do the work and eventually you're going to have to do the work, mm-hmm. like 
you're going to get there. Like that's just, you just have to get, you just have to find that strength and be like, you know, I, I, I deserve better. Like, and that's the, ultimately we all do. We all deserve better than who we are right now. And it's just how uncomfortable are you willing to get to continue to grow on a daily basis? Yeah. I love that. I think that's, you know, so important what you said of like, it doesn't matter necessarily what you went through. It just matters like where you're looking forward, where you're, tr- yeah. what you're trying to be. And I think, you know, with, with, this conversation was had about, you know, being in the Marines and is a huge, there's a huge mental component, right? We talked yeah. about like, you're looking at things very differently. You're challenging, not only like your physical strength, but challenging like your emotions and your, and your, oh, yeah. you know, mentally like oh, yeah. thoughts and everything. And, and, and we can, and sometimes in dark and, and sometimes in not super healthy, like right. some of that, like some of that, especially when Al Qaeda in Iraq was videotaping what they were doing to people and you're like, okay, let's look at that and, and figure out how we're going to deal with that when we're in that situation. Yeah. yeah so absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's a, that is a challenge, unfortunately, that gets to this place where it is very hard, like coming back and in, in integrating back into society and figuring out like how to, when you have such a different, you know, place that you're going to mentally and, and, and the connection, I feel like, I just made when, when I was hearing you share like that, that piece of it is that there was a challenge with the mental component of yoga as well, which is almost, it sounds to me like kind of like a comfort zone for you in the sense of like, let's, let's do this extreme. Like let's push myself out of this, you know, this comfort. Well, I think in a lot of ways it it, it was, but it was, it was also, and, and that was, yeah, it was, I mean, listening, you know, growing up, I listened growing up really. I mean, I listened to like headbanging music, like Motley mm-hmm. Crue, ACDC, that kind of stuff in high mm-hmm. school. Got a little experimental in college with some like goth like stuff, but still stayed mainstream hard rock. Yeah. And uh, expanded maybe to some REM. And then when I got in the military, like the military is kind of all guns blazing. Like it mm-hmm. is the heavier, the better kind of stuff. And I kind of lost, like I liked some RB stuff and like, Ooh, and I got away from that. So then to leave that and hear Sanskrit or yeah. Om chanting mm-hmm. um, for me. And actually in some ways the Om chanting reminded me of some of the festivals we saw when I lived in Japan. And that was certainly another connection to me because I started meditating. Like that was a bit like, I experienced beauty when I lived in Japan. Like that was the one thing it, and it was, it was the culture, it was the people, it was their acceptance of our presence. there, not as conquerors, but as like this deterrent and like this guard against communism and, you know, mm-hmm. USSR at the time. And so like, I started meditating when I was 13 or 14. Like I, I had a book on Shambhala, which is this mystical city if you're not familiar with it, but, mm-hmm. um, and it was the idea that you could stop thinking. Like that was the premise of meditation. And so like, this is absolutely true. Like I was a freshman in high school. So all my friends were out either football games or like partying or doing whatever, whatever freshmen do. And I would be in our living room, my parents would be out and I'd have like a Japanese sword in front of me and I would just meditate and try to focus on the sword until I stopped thinking. And then the book said, you stop. And then suddenly pop, a thought appears in your head. And that's like enlightenment. And I was like, what? are you talking about? <laughs> and, but I tried it. But then like when I got to yoga, like there was, a, there, that, there was that sort of instant connection to this Eastern philosophy. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was really empowering. And, you know, and I did, and I still like, but I also wanted to know like, 
okay, how does this balance against my beliefs and, and mm-hmm. what do I really believe? And, you know, Caitlin, the, the funny thing is that I've reconciled, like I loved, I loved what I did in the military. Like I, I loved my experiences mm-hmm. and I, and there was parts of me that were really good in the military. Like there are great things, how I thought, how I led. And what I did when I got out was I kind of pushed all that away. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm going to completely reinvent myself. And now kind of coming back to it, I'm like, okay, I can take the good things that I was, whether it was a leader or a you know, strategist or whatever, and apply those to who I am now because I can accept all of me and I can't be resentful of my experiences that shaped me because ultimately like that, that's part of my journey. The whole thing is part of my journey. I, I can't like block out just the bad parts or the good parts. So. Yeah. I love that. I think that's really important. Um, it's easy to look at, you know, pieces of ourselves that we didn't love or we decisions we didn't make and say, Oh, I'm not going to look at that being an aspect of myself, but with these kind of Eastern philosophies, that's, that's not an option. Like we're whole beings. And so I want to ask you, how do you feel like, like you master the mind, I guess. And how do you feel like you (laughs) were able to do that? Oh my gosh. I wrote a book about that. (laughs) Um, It's uh, it's, it's not as glamorous as it sounds Um, for me, especially as a writer, I spent, I like I've journaled in, in working on my latest book, I've written probably over 500 pages worth of stuff and it's handwritten because Mm -hmm. for me, that was in the 21st century. That was this almost kind of ecstasy. Like, let me, cause I, 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 when I wrote whiskey and yoga, it was a struggle. Like it was a struggle because I'd had all the failures of one dismissing writing for 15 years in the military. I wrote some poetry like in the early 2000s, Yeah. but then three failed attempts to write a horror story. Mm. And I remember I would sit down at the computer to type. I was like, can I do this? Can I finish a book? Can I finish a book? And I did. And it was like, this is super cool. Okay. And it was, I remember like the book went to number one when it launched and it was so cool. I had the scotch and it tasted slow motion. It was awesome. It was just like, wow, that's what aged scotch tastes like. It was so, so cool. And then it was over. And the next week someone's like, yeah, what, what's, what do you sell? Like, what's, what's your package? What's your platform? What do you got besides just a book? Cause that's what people want to like, if you can, and I'm like, Oh no, like I got to figure that out too. Mm-hmm. What's my platform? And I had already come up with the idea of whiskey or with lighthouse keeper, my second book in whiskey and yoga, because I would go to yoga sometimes and I would just, again, I'm still teaching gym yoga. I, I owned a studio for a little bit, but I gave up interest in it. It was just kind of more than I could focus on at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would go in and I just try to get the class to think differently about how they observe their world. Mm. And so sometimes I'd say your life is a movie and you are the director. Are you filming a tragedy? Are you filming a comedy? Is it an adventure? Like, what are you doing? Like, what are you putting out into the universe? Um, And one day I came in and said, your mind is this ocean and that's where all your memories are. Everyone you've ever met is in this ocean and your awareness is a lighthouse. And Generally speaking, we create patterns in our lives and habits and routines. And so that's kind of where the lighthouse goes. Mm-hmm. Well, when you become aware of the relationship between your mind and your awareness, then that's the first part to saying, okay, I want to direct where it goes. Mm-hmm. Like I want to control my focus and my awareness. And I was like, that's a pretty cool idea. And so the book came out in 2017 in October. Um, 
I was wrestling with after the revelation that I needed to actually have something to back up the book and like speak to people or whatever, how to do that. And, um, 18 months went by roughly. And I was listening to a Hindu monk, Dandapani, um, on YouTube. And he had this video and he's talking about your mind is this blank space, this infinite blank space. And your awareness is this ball of light and you can shine it. And I was like, uh, that's the lighthouse keeper. And so I, I'm like, I, I genuinely came across something that Hindu monks practice mm. and it wasn't through my study of Hinduism it was through my own introspection and my own journey. That's really powerful to me. I'm going to write a story about that. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at, I, I didn't want to do another self-help book in the sense that whiskey and yoga was personal. I didn't mind, like I didn't mind sharing vulnerability and things like that, but I like telling stories. Like I love telling stories. Like that's, that's the magical part of like who I was as a kid. And that's absolutely a part that I want to be present with today because that mm-hmm. like, there's just magic in that. And, and so I'm like, I'm going to write a fiction story and still give people a pathway towards taking steps to master their mind. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it's meditation, but a lot of it is pattern interrupt because you don't realize how much routine you have in your life until you, until you start interrupting it. And kind of the more you interrupt it in a way, the more present you become because you're like, oh, I'm stop. I'm not going to do this all the time. or I'm not going to do this. And you can change little habits. Like I tell people, one of the easiest things to think of this by is if you, whenever you start your car, I assume, unless you're like my mother, <laughs> most people, the AC is already on in the car. Like most people don't turn it on and off when they get out of the car. My mom does. And it's like when I've had to borrow her car to like whatever, <laughs> turn it on, you're like, uh, okay. And then I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna, that's a good habit to break. I'm going to turn my AC on and off every time I get in the car because it's not really a habit. Sometimes I forget to turn, like it's either if it's a nice day, I'm not going to turn it on, but if it's not, I'm definitely going to turn it on, but you you're present in that moment. And so you realize if I have routines and patterns, I have programming, neural and neuro linguistic programming mm-hmm. that all that kind of stuff relates I'm like, well, wait, then if I can break that and break the small stuff first, but then start to break the bigger stuff. I can be more present in my life. That's more fulfilling. I can be more authentic. That's more fulfilling. And so you realize that between meditation, focus, and willpower, that's kind of the cocktail of the story on how you learn to master your mind. And it's, but it's not, I, I mean, like I said, 500 pages of stuff and no editing. Like I read, I read this before I was writing whiskey and yoga, I mentioned this earlier. Before I started working on whiskey and yoga, I read a book. I think the woman's name is Natalie Goldberg. And it's called Writing Down the Bones. Mm-hmm. And it's about unleashing the writer within you. Mm-hmm. And what she says is, <clears throat> get a timer, pen and paper, set the timer for two minutes, five minutes. Pen doesn't come off the page. Don't worry about punctuation. Don't worry about margins. You just write whatever comes to your mind, pen, hand, however, wherever it goes, you just write. And I, the first time I did it, I remember I started writing, I said, I'm not sure why I'm doing this. Does it make sense? And then the timer went off and like three pages later, I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Like, where did all that come from? And so then I tried it again and same results. Like, that's pretty good. And I'm like, well, wait, what if I put an idea in there? and do it for two minutes. And I come up with a short story. I'm like, Oh my gosh. 
And so that was the other piece for me that now bringing this Zen moment of being in the military and trying to be this warrior poet after living in Japan for three years and stepping away from the military, like with, with anger, with resentment, with courage, with fear and stepping into yoga, which was light years opposite, <laughs> but still brings you this Zen and tranquility then I see the harmony of like, I, this is my journey to becoming a writer, becoming an author is to do all these things. Because what I found is writing that, that writing process now helps you be present. And so like, if, if you really want to know the key to mastering your mind, you have to journal and you have to not edit yourself when you do. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that um, I've done that with some of my just like journaling practices with like, new moon and full moon. And, you know, over the years, like the traditional therapy sense of journaling and yeah. all of that. And, and it really is powerful to see like what you write. And when you don't edit yourself, cause we, we don't notice how much we edit like our own thought patterns or our inner critic tells us like, Oh no, that's not right. Don't think that, or don't do that. And so it's powerful to see. And I, and I think that perception is incredible um, that you kind of, you mentioned of just like, when you become aware of like your thoughts and your patterns and you interrupt them, you take control of your life. Like you oh my gosh. become, yeah. <laughs> you become it's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's such a, it's such a crazy concept, Caitlin, but that is exactly it. And that's like, I know. I, so during the pandemic, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled because the way the story is unfolding is so beautiful. And like, I was handwriting the story mm -hmm. And it was this really moment, great moment. And then I had a friend of mine who's doing, started doing masterminds. Mm -hmm. And so we're doing masterminds. And I remember like some of the guys just pitched different ideas. And, and I got in there and I said, you know, you know, the voice in your head is, and the guy's like, nope, I don't, I don't have a voice in my head. I don't talk to myself. I don't know. Mm. And I was like, <laughs> huh, okay. And so I said, you know, I want like, what if everyone had like, how can you make everyone have something close to the same experience? Because how powerful would that be for everyone to like this whole group of people to feel largely the same thing? I mean, that's what a concert is. Mm -hmm. That's what a Tony Robbins event is. That's what a funeral is. Mm -hmm. um, and like, he, he didn't like the idea. And I was like, okay, but give it some thought. And so like, we talked more about it. And, and what I came to realize was a lot of men in my impression are terrified of having a conversation with themselves, which is essentially what journaling is. Like journaling is, this is coming from somewhere. I am producing it. And yet I'm also responding to or looking at it and it's creating a reaction in me. And it, it's, it's, I think that is one of the most powerful things you can do to really take control of your life is to journal, to get your thoughts out and not like, again, don't edit yourself, just let it flow because that is, I mean, there's something there that that's what presence is, is being present and being authentic and not having that editor or governor kind of dictate what you think you should write and just kind of writing. Yeah. I think that's so true. You said, you know, like men can be afraid to have a conversation with themselves. And I think um, it's absolutely men. And I, and I, I think there's women as well, but, the, but the male piece of things, I mean, um, I recently, like I'm currently in my master's and, I just watched a film for one of my classes and it was about lifespan development. And um, it showed a video of, it was all about like when kids start to understand like gender roles and um, you know, just like this idea of what mommy does and what daddy yeah. does and, and this idea. 
And it was interesting to see that by the age between two and five years old, kids can already distinguish gender roles. And what we already have imprinted of like, um, especially in boys about emotions is terrifying. Oh, I mean, yeah. the fact that like, you know, you don't cry, that's weak. And and yeah. just looking at like this, and, and we know this as a society, but it's such a big thing to change. And, and, but I think what you said was just made me think of that of like, we think that these massive shifts and like even our identity and what we want to do is like this grand thing. And by just sitting down and writing, unediting yourself, like being just like natural, not even yep. putting in an effort, we can make this, these massive shifts in ourselves of just like seriously taking control of our lives and shifting. Like today I was talking to one of my friends and, um, you know, we we're talking about like just different things I'm doing in my life. And, and I work full time and I do my business and I have a podcast and I'm in my master's and she's like, how do you juggle all those parts? And I was like, you just do it. Like, yeah, like it's yeah. just, you just like, I don't even think about it. I just show up because I'm being like, I just do it. I'm, yeah. I enjoy it. And I put my focus into what I'm doing and we, and we don't pay attention to this idea that like when you're just being with yourself and you're comfortable in that space of like not editing and it's such a process, but when you're in that space, what you can get done and how much control you have over your life and the process of it is just astounding. Well, and I, Caitlin, I love what you said, because I think like even some of the things I've written, whether it's part of my book or part of the journal have to me been so breathtaking. Like, mm -hmm. I'm like, I can't believe I wrote something so beautiful. Yeah. Some things at the time were so awful mm -hmm. that I just broke down. Mm -hmm. And yet I look back at that now and I'm like, are you kidding me? Like emotion is one of the richest feelings. Like it's a, one of the richest drugs in my mm -hmm. system. And if I can't like go into feeling the range of emotions of all what I've been through and experience the joy that that's producing by continuing on this journey. Like, Oh my gosh, I want to feel every single moment of that because that's like, that's where the riches of life is. I think what's interesting is, you know, I feel, I certainly feel the shift is, you know, without, this is not meant to disparage women. Mm -hmm. History has been written mostly in the blood of conflict. I mean, it's yep. just Western civilization shaped through the Greeks, the Romans, um, and for men, the hero's journey is external. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's physically, I must conquer and what I must conquer is outside of me. And if I conquer that somehow I will find this thing inside of me. Yeah. And, and part of it's about like not recognizing that you have to, those like what you need to conquer isn't immediately the first thing you have to conquer. There's other things that come along mm -hmm. and then it becomes a question, well, how bad do you want what you really want to conquer? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, that's what writing was for the first couple. Like I wanted to write a horror story, couldn't do it, kept trying better ideas, still like something's missing. And then instead of looking what I was thinking about, it became introspective and it was like, okay, what is my purpose in life? And how am I going to articulate that in a short book, which I'm terrified I'm not going to be able to fill to make it like, I don't want it to be a pamphlet. Mm -hmm. And so like, I even, I even wrote it this weird way, but then you, you come from that and like, okay, I wrote the book. Like mm -hmm. I, I did the work. 
And then, well, you got to have a platform. Oh, crap. Okay. Well, okay. Well, I want a platform. Like I want, like, I know there's something inside me. I just have to keep pecking at it. Women, I think, at least my impression is the heroine's journey is internal. Mm. The heroine's journey is one of wisdom. And that's why I can't get most of my guy friends to do yoga. Mm. But, but for women that like, there's, that's that they're wise. And so what I've started to see in corporate America is, Whereas, in, whereas it used to be, and I'm certainly, I'm sure some cultures are still like this, where there was a boss and that boss said, this is what we're going to do and you better follow my directions or else. And there's a kind of fear that keeps everyone in line. Now, women are taking into key senior positions mm-hmm. and they're like, no, it's not about what I know or what I want. It's about what's best for the company. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't matter what your position is. It matters what you know, and it's completely sort of changing the paradigms at work. And I think that for me is that even that has encouraged my internal journey because you realize if I can, if I need to be this internal better version of myself to go where I'm after, then I'm all in like, that's, that's my surrender to serenity and internal peace and the internal journey, whatever that is, but I'm all about it. And I think that's really exciting to me just to see that shift, especially, you know, as the the pandemic kind of continues to, to hold a veil over our lives to a large degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I, I love that concept and I could go in so many different directions with this, but the idea of like gender roles and, the differences of like how people think and and men and women is always an interesting concept to me because I think we look at each other as so different and showing up like so different, but realistically our journeys are very similar. The differences become in this part where it's the, what society has put on us of like this kind of, this is how we do it here. This is how we do it. And there are, you know, different chemical reactions, but at the same time, when you look at, how every single fetus starts as a female and then like we morph into it. Like, it's very interesting to look at, like we look at each other as so different, but when we look at the internal journey of how we really do need to go. And when you look at like the reactions of kids and the sensitivity of like young boys compared to girls and especially like the aggressive behavior, because we always put that, you know, kind of as boys learn to be aggressive girls are actually just as aggressive as boys. And we notice that, but the difference is when people jump in, people jump in to stop boys being aggressive and people don't jump in to stop girls because the girls stop on their own, but we don't give the boys a chance to learn it. So it's just totally a tangent, but I I love that. (laughs) That was so cool. No, that was so cool. I hadn't even thought about it like that. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. That's so true. Like, Oh, wow. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just bizarre to, to really look at like what the journey is between e- between this, but I do want to ask you, because I think we've kind of touched on this idea of, of just people in general and like having to show up actively in your life and take control. What do you think is the biggest thing that holds people back? I think it's fear. And I think it's comparison. And I think yeah. because comparison is a thief of joy. And when you're looking at your friend or that couple or that house or that thing, 
and you have this envy because of what they have, you're missing the point. Like you can't focus on what they have. You have to focus on your own deal. And that's where you kind of project from. And because that requires breaking patterns, Mm -hmm. which means getting out of your comfort zone, which means fear, people stop because it's like, I don't want to get too uncomfortable. Uh, I don't like, I just want to rock the like, gentle ride here. No roller coasters, please. And, and that's ultimately what stops people from moving forward because you just have to embrace the fact that that's, I think the one thing the pandemic has certainly hopefully shown a lot of us is that it's okay to have your patterns disrupted. Mm-hmm. And when you do, you start to notice life is actually really beautiful. And yeah. when you find kind of when you start to reset to that idea, then it's kind of galvanizing to come back to, okay, I do have a purpose in life. Mm-hmm. There's a mission that I'm on. There's this thing that is calling to me that I want to answer and honor. And then it's like, uh, I don't care about the fear. Like I'm, I'm caring about where I'm on this journey because this has been the most fulfilling part of my life to, to date. Like, and, and whether it's a midlife crisis or coming into 14 years of yoga finally going off, mm-hmm. um, you get to this place and like, I feel so empowered and authentically in touch with who I am and everything feels aligned. And that is so powerful. And yeah, I absolutely had to go through miles of fear yeah. and weeks and months of fear yeah. to get over that. But it's just a question again, what do you believe in? You know, and, that, and I think honestly, Caitlin, that's something that I would, um, I'd love to bring up too is, one of the other things I got involved with with Tony Robbins and Dean Graziosi and a couple other people mm-hmm. was this knowledge knowledge brokers blueprint that they had created um, right before the pandemic. I think one or two years before the pandemic, and it was basically this idea that helping people unlock their superpowers. Mm-hmm. Like every one of us has a unique gift and find it, and then you do a mastermind, you teach people it, and maybe some people want to pay you, maybe they won't. But in that, Tony Robbins is one of the first. I think the first uh, video of the series talks about kind of these four boxes and one is potential. And we all know that we have incredible potential, mm-hmm. but then usually the action that we take doesn't match the potential. And as a result of that, the results we don't, don't match our potential and don't match what we expect. And so then our certainty starts to lag and we repeat that pattern and we're like, well, see, I told you it wasn't going to win. or I told you it wasn't going to work out. Mm-hmm. And what he focuses on in that is belief. And it really comes down to you said what you believe and how can you have absolute certainty about something? And that's a question I think that every person on the planet needs to ask themselves, like, what can I be absolutely certain about my life? Because that helps you get focused and gets clarity on things. And I think that is, if there's anything else I've learned that has had the biggest impact and impression on me over the course of the past three years or so, it's probably been trying to understand absolute certainty and how I can put that into my life. Hmm. I like that concept. I feel like I also struggle with it because I like to me, I'm like, is there anything that we can be absolutely certain about? But maybe, I mean, maybe like I strongly believe that like our internal creates our external. So maybe what I can be certain about is that is me like that. I'll show up for myself. Right. Like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And I think too, you hit on this piece about um, fear and comparison being what holds people back. And, And I like that because you said discomfort and it just made me think of like growing up, it was constantly like a joke in in my family and with my friends of like, Caitlin, you can make people uncomfortable so easily. And I'm like, (laughs) 
I totally can. Right. And I don't get uncomfortable, but I can absolutely make people uncomfortable because, you know, and people would always say like, oh, you just say what's on your mind. And I do. And it's not that I lack boundaries. I just don't like the idea of taboo subjects. I don't think things should be taboo. We're, we're humans, we're creatures. We all experience different things. So, but it made me think of this idea of discomfort and why I like making people uncomfortable is because first of all, I'm not in the people pleasing business. I don't care if people, you know, like me or not, I'm not here to people please. The other piece is discomfort is where we grow. We're not, we don't grow when we're comfortable or we're in those patterns or those habits. And like you talked about, there are so many places we don't even realize that we've created these habits and a habit is often comparison, right? Like how many times are we looking at our neighbor or like, I was literally talking to my friend about this today about social media and how you just get on social media. And it's like, I was questioning, like, we're all guilty of that scroll on social media. Oh yeah. And I was like, (laughs) why do I follow these people? And so I had to sit there and I was like, okay, do I follow them because I'm judging them? Because that's human nature, right? Yep. Do I follow them because I'm comparing my life and feeling like I'm not adequate? Or am I comparing that I feel like I'm better than somebody? Like, there's so many different reasons of like, is there any reason that this is being helpful to me to mindlessly scroll on social media? And I just, and, and we know that the answer is like consciously no, but I was like, why am I doing this? Why is this a pattern? Why is this sure, a habit sure. that I fall into? Um, and, and it really triggered some feelings in me. And then I started to feel like, okay, great. Now I'm like feeling, you know, regret or like shameful. And I'm like, okay, but hold on. Let's not like shame myself for that because every feeling has a place in a healthy life, right? So this discomfort, it kind of comes back to that of like when you're feeling these and shaming yourself for feeling a certain feeling because it's uncomfortable, you're diminishing your own growth. And again, going back to what you said, being like your own inner critic of like censoring yourself and not showing up actively in your life. It's kind of just like full circle. I was like, oh, that's that's pretty good. (laughs) Well, it is. And and right. And it keeps you in your comfort zone Mm because you're like you now you're berating yourself not to challenge yourself to grow. And so you're like, oh, okay. But I think also, I think if you get to that point where it's like I think I, I mean I think you can break those cycles too. I yeah. certainly think you can get to the point where you're like I'm so frustrated with this. I'm not going to do this anymore. Like yep. this is it, and mm-hmm. that's like and that's a painful way to get there. But it's if you're not willing to allow people to put you in uncomfortable situations, then ultimately your life is going to get to a pattern where that's the only that's like the only possibility for growth really is yeah. to get to that point where it breaks and you're like okay, got it. Right. Well, apparently just tell people to talk to me because I make people uncomfortable, but that's all right. That's good to know. That's, I will refer people. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, like I said, I just don't like the idea of taboo subjects. Um, but I, I want to ask you, I have two other questions and, and one of them has been kind of nagging at me. What is Operation Restore Hope? Oh, yeah. So Operation Restore Hope took place in 1992, uh, I think through 94 in uh Somalia in Africa, the Horn of Africa. And so in the early 90s, because of both drought conditions, but also um, tribal warfare, uh, Somalia was undergoing a tremendous famine in the early 90s. And so President Clinton uh, sent in the U.S. military. And so uh, I was part of the initial landing force. So there was about I think I don't know, 3,000 Marines that came in on uh, from ships, from Navy ships off the coast. We'd landed on December 9th, 1992. And then within you know a few weeks, we probably had, I don't know, 40,000 
U.S. military there, and we're bringing food into the country to mm-hmm. help start stave off the famine. Perfect. Thank you. I yeah, yeah. I didn't know that, and, and I sure. found it interesting. Um, okay, and then last question I want to ask you: Out of all of this, what is the biggest lesson you've learned up to this point in your life? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, geez. The big one for last, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I think. So I've uh, I've I've done a lot of um, reading on the quantum physics and things like that mm-hmm. because obviously when you do yoga, yep. Joe Dispenza has done tremendous work in quantum physics, looking yep. at like plasma and how plasma sort of connects reality that we perceive and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you take that into this world of science, and we know that like within the the microseconds after our universe came into being. Mm-hmm that everything that exists today was smaller than like a point of light, basically. Mm-hmm. And so you can say that's kind of how the universe started as a single point of light. And yet we all exist as part of the energy of the universe because energy can't be destroyed or created. It can only be transformed. Right. And so part of us has been there since the birth of the universe. And mm-hmm. so in some ways, I think there's a single point of light in each of us. And if you can find that, that gets you really closest to what your purpose is and how to have the greatest impact on other people's lives. I love that. I strongly believe in collective consciousness and the power of that and, you know, all of us being connected. And yep. so I think that's that's a beautiful piece of it. Caitlin, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. It has been so great um, connecting with you. And I feel like I could talk to you for forever about so many different things, but, um, I do want to thank you for coming on and sharing. I also want to thank you for your service. I'm very appreciative of that. Um, so for all of our listeners, I'm going to drop all the information of where you can find David and connect with him and follow him and check out those awesome books he talked about, um, in the notes of this episode. So make sure to check that out. And then also please remember to subscribe, rate and review. Um, I want to know what you guys want to hear. This is your guys's platform. This is for you. So let me know what you want to hear. Um, and as always, thanks for listening and being on the abundance alchemist podcast. Thanks so much. Bye guys. Thank you for hanging out with me on the Abundance Alchemist podcast. Don't forget to head over and grab your free self-love activation meditation at theabundancealchemist.com and hit subscribe here so you don't miss a thing. Until next time, sending you so much love.